I'm Tammy Vindange, your host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Peter Adamick, the CEO of the Canberra Innovation Network. Today, we're going to chat about the good, bad, and hard things about running a not-for-profit. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We met a number of years ago when I think the first interaction I had with the Canberra Innovation Network, or Seabrum, as a lot of people will call it, was I was a mentor for one of your um, hackathons. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I ended up being, I don't know if you call them residents, in your, your, your space. Uh, but I took up a little space there for once a week before COVID. Um, so I got to know a lot of the staff and the other businesses that were spending time there. Um, for those people that are not familiar with the Canberra Innovation Network, can you tell us more about it? Absolutely. So not-for-profit organization, um, its, um, its mission is to create an environment for entrepreneurs in Canberra and AACT to, to thrive, Australian capital territory. That is, we are supported by the local government, by the, by the territory's government, but also we were founded by a group of universities, higher education institutions and research institutions in this territory. So they came together in about 2014 to, um, to create this network so that they can leverage it and they can contribute to it. And, um, and the government came to the table with some base funding and with space. So the space you, uh, you visited and you were part of that's um, provided to us by ACD government. And we curate the environment there so that entrepreneurial people, innovators can, can use it to start and to progress fast or fail fast um, on their mission to, to change the world through an entrepreneurial idea. So that's, that's uh, in a nutshell, uh, why we exist and what our purpose is. And uh, we um, run a number of programs or connect a number of programs in the ecosystems that can help people do that. Hackathons, that's, that's one area, and collaborative innovation sessions, but we also um, have a co-working space. We, um, we are um, supporting or directly running accelerator programs and an incubator space. And, uh, and a number of events in the ecosystem where people can connect to each other and, um, and can build a company that can change the world. The startup world, as most people would recognize it, is not usually aligned with not-for-profits. And so the fact that the government is, has uh, largely funded this, um, this entity is kind of unusual, I think, from, you know, if you look around the world and you look at these incubators, what was their their mission in terms of recognizing there was this need locally that they needed to support it as much as the community? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, not-for-profit is, is a known instrument in stimulating the startup environments around the world. It's it's part of the new way of uh, of supporting local economic development as opposed to creating, you know, greenfield industrial parks or business parks. We are now trying to support the local community to come up with ideas and solutions that can gain traction and can 
can you know make the make the community wealthier basically more, more prosperous and uh, and this kind of focus on this endogenous drivers of, of uh, economic growth that's uh, happening around the world and it's typically uh, in a situation of what we call market failure where you as an loan entrepreneur don't have the resources don't have the money and the quick access to capital to be able to um, to hire professional consultants and uh, people and expertise you need for your business so so innovation networks incubators they are the environments in which these resources are brought together and uh, sort of your time to expertise is made shorter so so not for profit as an instrument that stimulates this is a known is a known way to do it um, in the ACT it was particularly important to find a way how how to get people with uh, business ideas off the ground because we are a uh, you know government town there's a the, the business of government is a major employer here and uh, we need to diversify the economy towards uh, more knowledge intensive industries and we have all the predispositions here for it um, but uh, but still we want the companies to grow f- at a faster pace um, than it would be possible without an organization like the Canberra Innovation Network. So what kind of businesses do you support through this organization? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, we always start by saying we are sector agnostic. So it doesn't matter from which walk of life or where, where your solution is, but we are looking at the innovation potential for your business. So if you want to open a restaurant or a traditional business that services the local community, we, we would uh, probably not see a fit. Uh, we are looking for uh, people who have ideas that can have global impact. So so if it's if it's in the restaurant area can you come up with a solution or a technology that can be available to all the restaurants to make them more productive or more digitized etc so that's it that's in a nutshell and uh, we of course try to um, try to lure entrepreneurs from all walks of life so uh, researchers students um, um, whether they already work in existing um, government entities, they they may have an idea how to make things better, how to how to improve services that may be applicable around the world, and we want them to be able to have a place where they can start it. What percentage of the companies you work with right now are IT focused? Then uh, I would say hundred percent because we are in the age where digital is just omnipresent so so uh, but if we if we kind of talk about categorizing uh, companies it would be probably you know quarter or one third uh, you'd be surprised how many companies are in uh, the nutrition space health space in uh, renewable energy um, in um, in the food and beverage right we had uh, some of the most prominent uh, non-alcoholic beer brands uh, come through uh, the space so yeah yeah well, the other one I was thinking about is just this week as we're as we're taping this show. You also have this whole thing around cybersecurity right now. Now, was that 
a government-driven program to try to build capability locally? Is that what that's about? So, so I would say cybersecurity is a naturally important domain in Canberra. Um, you know, that, that whole nucleus around government services, um, defense, and cybersecurity makes sense. And there was a lot of capability, a lot of companies already providing services to governments here, but also nationally and internationally. And, um, and uh, that area has been always active. But uh, Canberra Innovation Network was invited by the ACT government to, to think about and, uh, and to join uh, a new movement. Uh, Canberra Cyber Hub was, uh, was established as a separate company of um, where Canberra Innovation Network is one of its members. So, so again, we are sector agnostic, but we try to kind of ignite uh, activity in different um, sectors and also then bring them together and connect them so that on these interfaces, um, you know, new innovations can emerge that can have global impact. So I don't know how much our audience under, uh, know about accelerators, and I could see from your background that you've been involved in them for a long time. Uh, first of all, how did you get involved in, in Canberra Business or Canberra Innovation, Innovation Network? Network. Yeah, so I arrived to Canberra in 2014 from Hamilton, New Zealand, where we lived uh, for a number of years uh, before I moved there from, from the Czech Republic, where I'm originally from. I was born in Czechoslovakia. And um, all my professional life after I finished my university, I studied artificial intelligence back in the day before it was popular. Um, I got involved in an American company back then that um, provided economic development consulting. So we helped cities and regions around Central and Eastern Europe to come up with, uh, you know, economic transformation plans. And a lot of times, um, industrial parks, business parks, um, uh, incubators and um, SME support centers were part of the strategy. So I had extensive connections and linkages uh, around innovation centers in, in Europe. And, um, and uh, when I came to New Zealand, my first uh, assignment there or job there was to help the New Zealand Trade and Enterprise uh, assess and build a digital industry cluster around the city of Hamilton, which is known for its agriculture and agri-tech uh, capabilities. And uh, again, they were looking at how do they di diversify the economy and build on that creative class and on the digital capabilities. And uh, the final presentation of this happened to be a, in a business incubator of, of my study. And um, the CEO immediately saw a potential how to connect the digital industry cluster with the, um, with the incubation function. And uh, I became integral part of that team. I was responsible for building and growing the business programs there. And uh, later I became acting CEO. But that was already when my partner got a job with University of Canberra and we were sort of on the move here. And so I looked on Twitter and I found the people who were active in entrepreneurship in Canberra, I had a few coffees and uh, my sort of third uh, introduction was to the CEO of the then being set up Canberra Innovation Network. I was here first before the, the network actually opened and, um, and uh, she asked me if I could do a study on how to set up a business incubator here, which I did. And after that, I had to also run it. So, <laughs> Congratulations. <clears throat> There's two things you just said right there that I thought was interesting. One, that for you to figure out who to connect with, you went to Twitter. Yeah. 
there's not a lot of people that that's their first thought. Yeah, I, I think I, I would disagree. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they try to get into a new domain, they they look on social media and they find who is who and set up calls and really discover and get in-depth understanding of the, what the environment is. So I, I looked at who tweets about entrepreneurship from Canberra and I found Rory Ford, the founder of Entry29. Uh, we had coffee. He introduced me to Nick McNaughton, who was the ANU Connect Ventures. And he, after coffee with me, sent 17 emails to people locally. So I was immediately at two degrees of separation yeah. to everyone here. So that was amazing to see. And I was excited about how the ecosystem already works. And then when that vision was introduced to me about Canberra Innovation Network and its incubator or the Griffin Accelerator, which was which was uh, a separate entity, but but part of and collaborating with the network, I got immediately excited. And I, I kind of put my hand up and said, I want to be part of yeah, this. Yeah, I think also because you've been in the at least aligned with the IT industry for so long that you're right, Twitter is such a way that people communicate and, and get to follow and meet people. Um, in the not-for-profit sector, though, it's actually quite different. Like that's not their number one choice of uh, social media for most of that sector, which is interesting. Um, for I want to go back when you were talking about Hamilton specifically, and when you you started that incubator program, was that a, a not for profit? Um, Organization. Yes, there was a not-for-profit as well, not a charity, but not-for-profit. I did not really start it. I just, I just got immersed into what uh, others have started there. But that was my first chance to not just be a consultant for incubators, but to really be responsible for it. And uh, and I, I was very grateful for for you know that they included me in this and. Sort of by trial and error, we built programs for entrepreneurs, including Lean Startup Workshops that became um, very successful and part of bringing people into that you know community of clients. And when I came here in Canberra, I had like a whole arsenal of things I wanted to do. So I was just ready to go here. I know we've interviewed um, Cindy Reese Mitchell from yeah. Millhouse. And she's actually taken a lot of your programs and has uh, tweaked it to deliver it for the social enterprise space specifically. Like the lean startup, how do you start an organization from scratch quickly and, and in a very efficient way? Um, do, you, do you see a lot of parallels between the work that you're doing and, and what Millhouse does? Absolutely. Like we are connected at the hip, <laughs> I would say. And I'm so glad that we can collaborate this way and uh, and sort of our learning can be can be kind of uh, tweaked and uh, and adapted for the social enterprises and for the for purpose businesses that they that they uh, support and i did the same like i am not the founder of the lean startup movement i just looked at what are the products elsewhere and adapted it for that new zealand audience and when we came here i collaborated a lot with dr craig davis from the griffin accelerator and we have co-created basically the Lean Startup Workshop program uh, to the tune that it is today. And so when I saw um, the Millhouse kind of, you know, seeing the opportunity to convert it for social enterprises, I was all for it. We opened our cards and I think in many ways they, they did it way better <laughs> when, when they adapted it for, uh, for the social enterprises. I, I think that in the not-for-profit space, 
organizations are far better collaborators anyway. So to be able to share that IP is absolutely crucial just, just to be able to scale yourself, right? The organization that, that you're running now versus the one that you, you were working with a few years ago when you started, how has that changed over time? That's a that's a great question. I'm I'm sort of the um, the person who values consistency, and uh, so I hope some of the basic parameters and the philosophy underlying philosophy has not really changed. What what is adapting and changing all the time is how we interact with entrepreneurs, how we find them, and how we connect them to what's possible to to make sure that they have the most up-to-date and relevant uh, resources that they need. Because their world is changing, they're adapting all the time. And um, but uh, but uh, again, that the community needs some stability. And uh, and if you if you kept kind of uh, launching new incubators every other year, and you you lost the the people the 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 skills and the structures and programs, I think it would be more difficult for, for people to kind of um, build on that momentum that can come from a broader consistency and brand awareness. So how is the organization different? You know, 2014, nobody knew what Canberra Innovation Network was. And uh, the first years of activity for any not-for-profit, it's basically defining who you are as not seen by you, but also as perceived by your clients and stakeholders and by the community. So so we went through phases where people would know us uh, and experience us as the, the hackathon people or the co-working space or, um, you know, the accelerator program or the first ones they connect, which I haven't mentioned yet, but it's a it's a major component of our activity in this city. It's a monthly gathering for anyone interested in innovation from mentors all the way to students, investors, SMEs, government people, etc. And it's a fantastic melting pot where you can build like a docket of meetings for a whole month for yourself if you are starting a business and um, and that will just take you to the next stage. And when I talk consistency, first one was July 1, 2015, which was re- basically coincides with the date when I started to work full time for the Canberra Innovation Network, and um, and uh, last one was this week, um, and and there will be another one, and we have not missed one uh, since that uh, July one, two thousand fifteen, and so thousands of people have been through these networking events and uh, and literally almost a thousand pitches there's 60 second pitches so you only have 60 seconds to tell the world what you need what you are doing and uh, that's that's enough for people to to kind of uh, connect with you so so i believe how is the organization different it's uh, it has you know many people go through it uh, every cohort is different of the accelerator of the idea to impact program or other programs um, we have also a change in rotation in staff but um, the core philosophies stay the same and we empower entrepreneurs our impact is through them it's not through us and what we do we exist to support them I, I know when you said you haven't missed a Wednesday. You pivoted during COVID when we weren't allowed to gather. So, so it was this, this virtual version of it that you managed to keep going. I have to say that you and I both probably attended, you know, far more networking events than we can possibly count, and most of our audience probably the same. 
the one thing that strikes me as very different about that event is the energy in the room is contagious. Like having all these entrepreneurs with hope of doing something amazing and then the opportunity to tell people, I need a co-founder, I need funding, I'm looking for an expert in this space. Um, we're about to launch. Would you like to try it? You know, like just that 60-second opportunity to share with the world what they're doing. It's just I've never been to any networking event like that. It's incredible. It is. I I am energized from it every single time, and including when it was virtual, which was which was a massive, massive uh, kind of surprise to me because I thought this is all a little bit. Uh, medieval right we all come together <laughs> pre-covid it was normal right we all come together and we kind of talk really quickly with each other show each other what we have what we, how we can help each other so there's something really human about about this marketplace for connections and uh, and i thought in the virtual space it will be more difficult to achieve but no this was probably always the highlight of my month from working from home when i when i came and and attended this first wednesday connect at the end of it i was at home in my pjs maybe and but completely energized from these interactions uh, with people so i think you are right there's something about entrepreneurs that's different and there's there's something contagious almost like infectious about this and when you immerse yourself there you you sort of see i'm not alone i'm not the weird one others also want capital others also need to software developers etc and here is here is a person who can help me and uh, and just just feels you are not building a company from your bedroom or garage by yourself but at least once a month you can meet 250 other people and and it's always different people right that 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 beauty of the networking is that it keeps rolling and every time there is new people and new blood and they they feel like we all did when we first came there i I interviewed Debbie Saunders from um, Wildlife Drones not too long ago, and that's how we met, was that's through a, one of those First Wednesday events. So, yeah, there, it, it's incredible how diverse and interesting that crowd is. But you had to create some sort of framework to create that culture. Certainly the people that come to these events are special in that way. But what were some of the key elements that you thought about when you set up this event to to initiate this energy well um i remember exactly the moment when it happened we were sitting in craig's office with rory ford the three of us and thinking we should have like a meetup where where people can meet beyond this co-working space right? and how, how do we do that and, and i came from new zealand I, I used to work for about a year i was going like a week to New Zealand and three weeks here. And I said, well, we had there like this on first Wednesdays of the month, we had like a, like beers and drinks and nibbles there. And um, they were both like, let's do it here. And so the first one, I think it came from uh, my personal um, Eventbrite account and uh, MailChimp and Craig had his list. We put it together. We kind of sent it to maybe thousand people and we thought, 30 people will show up. But there were 100, 120 people the first time. And it felt the first time exactly like it feels now. Only now there's more more and more people. So so after we saw the energy, and uh, again, in, in Hamilton, we would have 30, 40, 50 people. 
but uh, but here it became from day one quite big and uh, and that size has just just stayed even even throughout the ver- difficult virtual times people were hungry to stay connected and uh, i know anyone who attends them from from outside um wants to bring them to their cities and there are copies of first ones they connect happening around the world now you also have the co-working space which i used to utilize as as a sole entrepreneur it does get lonely you know like you do a lot of video calls you but sometimes you want to just interact with people individually and so for before covid i was i was there once a week now what makes it different than other co-working spaces like as an example i was um, using one of the commercial spaces when i was working from melbourne a couple of weeks ago just because i needed a quiet space no one talks to each other there No. at those at those commercial ones and you hear that when people say oh they're going to go to Bali or wherever and they're just going to meet people at the whatso or the um whatever space they decide to use the difference is at the Canberra Innovation Network you actually get to know all these other entrepreneurs people introduce you and they introduce themselves to you how did you make that culture work because it doesn't feel like these other commercial models to me look it's a, it's a lot of work I, this doesn't happen by itself i think what helps is that we as a space don't have just this single function of a corking because if we had it might be more difficult but we run events there there's other programs happening so i would say about 10,000 people go through the space every year there's about 290 events per year so this is really the traffic there is is huge and that kind of communication is the culture because you see it around you 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 do it as well even though there are software developers who traditional people with earphones and they're on their um on their computers well in the kitchen it's a different story and then also uh, there's different parts of the space it's not just one giant uh, uniform space there's uh, and pockets and the culture there is also almost like a subculture so it's it's known that we can talk a lot more around the coffee machine and so on and and it does happen we have lots of visitors and what we do with these visits we stop by an entrepreneur's table and we say what are you working on Tammy and you have an opportunity to pitch to CEO of Optus or whoever is just going through that space so so i think i think that culture needs to be looked after we have uh, events for coworkers like catchups with experts from accounting hr you name it and they they sort of um they create the demand for it and we have a co-working manager who looks who looks after it but uh, as also what connects these people is we are not accepting into the co-working space anyone who needs space we are looking for a fit so there's an application process has to be someone who is building an innovative company or can contribute substantially to other people building an innovative company so and it's cheap like it may it's very affordable to to be there so i could see why a lot of people would just say oh cheap rent let's go ahead and go there the other thing that i thought was unique that is that you actually have a slack channel that those people that are even there once a week like i was are a part of so you see all these things that are going on when you're not there so you feel like you're missing out yep well we we don't call it cheap we call it subsidized because <laughs> it's our it's our uh it's our cost to to support these entrepreneurs and if they bleed out on rent 
they can't do the things that they are you know set set to do so so that's why that's why we kind of look into who can access this and you can't be there forever right so uh, and yes yeah, slack channel is all part of it there's uh, there's the cat photos of course but there's also a lot of connection you can make even when you are not there and if you are coming there one day a week which is a great way to kind of get introduced to the space and a lot of people still have their lab or workshop or you know garage and they 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 can use the space once a week but thanks to this the slack channel you you know everyone even when you are physically not there with them on the same day yeah and i also found like the other thing was that your staff were actively introducing me to people within the space that Absolutely. they thought would add value or we could help each other mm-hmm. it, it, like that that was something that you don't see in these commercial models um i guess the other question i was just thinking about was in terms of the the co-working space itself what percentage of the people that are physically there are actually a part of one of your funded accelerator programs where they're getting some sort of um, investment, I guess, in them versus those that are just like like me, that were just um, entrepreneurs wanting to connect? Yeah, I would say a smaller number would be part of the accelerator programs we have we have typically the cohort is small it has about six companies in it and uh, throughout the program they have access to the space and about half of them um, then decides to stay on and uh, so so i would say there's less than 50% of them would be some graduates of the accelerator programs, but more of them might have accessed the Innovation Connect grants, which are prototyping funding, uh, matched funding um, provided by the government to starting entrepreneurs. And uh, yes, yeah, some of them come just and they have their own funding or their own pathways. So I, I don't know the number exactly, but um, I would assume it's about 50-50. And as, as you said, the team there is great in connecting people with each other. We also meet about 400 new entrepreneurs per year through our intro meetings. So that's a major way to get connected to uh, our services is you just book an intro meeting with an expert from the growth team. And uh, then you come into our space and say, hey, I also need a space. And uh, where can I get this? We invite you to First Wednesday Connect. Um, I'm at this stage, so the growth um, team expert says, well, you could be eligible for this grant, look at this, um, this info session, etc. So people get very quickly introduced to the whole range of services, and many of them use all of them, and some people use just some of them, but uh, everyone knows in the co-working space what's available to them. Given the number of entrepreneurs you see, both through the program and even the Wednesday Connect, how do you measure success? Yeah, this is well. As a, I come from consulting, so so I first started with measuring and evaluating and auditing innovation ecosystems as as a professional, <laughs> before I was one responsible for one. <laughs> so, so uh, we have a lot of detailed numbers around our throughput. So we would know everyone who has been at our first Wednesday Connect. Uh, and uh, and we every time look at how many, what was the percentage of people who have never been 
and um, and so that's uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, we, as if you were through our workshops, you would have received a feedback form, and we have thousands of feedbacks. That way, we keep uh, the programs always kind of adapting to what people are saying they need. So that's how they always evolve. And um, and again, we measure success through the Net Promoter Scores for, for each program, and that is published in our quarterly reports that goes to our board and to our stakeholders and funders. Uh, and these are extensive, extensive reports. But uh, to kind of evaluate the impact, we often rely on external consultants. So in, in this last um, assessment, uh, we asked uh, one of the big six uh, consulting firms and they, their chief economist created a model and then basically uh, assessed uh, what could be our direct and induced uh, indirect contribution to the local economy in terms of jobs and in terms of um, uh, contribution to gross state product. And we're very proud to learn this, uh, that, that we added in 2021 um, hundred million dollars to the local economy. So that's not small. Yeah, it's not small at all. The the number of people that you interact with, though, like I, I'm just thinking about how practically you, they did the modeling, because so many people will drop out of the mm -hmm. program and yet still have benefits benefited from from attending those workshops or, or being through the accelerator, the business might not be successful. Do you actually have any statistics in terms of the number of graduates from some of these programs that are actually able to to get past even the first 12 months of, of business? We don't measure it exactly that way, but for some programs we do, like the Innovation Connect grants, we we survey them regularly and um, and we kind of look at their revenue and collective revenue and uh, so that we can report back to the government, um, you know, what's the, what's the effect of the particular program. And the Innovation Connect grant program is very successful. And even if the companies may, may die, and, and a lot of them do, the collective revenue of those who survive is just massive compared to the amount of government money put in there. So, so um, we we do consider it, and that model <laughs> did consider it as well. There was surveying happening about what what uh, at what stage did you engage with the network, uh, when did you finish, and what did you do afterwards. So, and I imagine that a lot of these people are just come coming to you with ideas. I know when we had that conversation with Cindy, she said a lot of the time that you spend is trying to work out the fact that the, well, especially in the social enterprise space, is there even a commercial model that's viable? Do you, do you find that within your program that you have business ideas or do you have truly business owners that have already started something and need some help? All of it. <clears throat> so we have people who are naive to business and we have people who are serial uh, entrepreneurs who um, who know how to do it, just they would like to do it faster. So so we had some phenomenal entrepreneurs who became our clients just because they wanted to tap into everything possible so that they can grow their business faster. And um, it's great to have this variety because they learn from one another. And especially in the more established companies, the scale-up stage, 
we have found that rather than us kind of telling them what to do, which we never do, that's not our philosophy, we let them work together and share um, and focus on topics together. So we have this scale-up leaders lunch where people from that stage of company growth can meet the CEOs. And it's a little bit of a club where they can kind of share the things they can't maybe share in their team and compare notes and learn from one another. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's let's talk about the operational side because you, obviously you're delivering a lot of programs and sorry, I have so many interesting um, questions or I'm very interested in, in the business side of, of those types of accelerators. But how many staff do you have to run all these programs? Twelve. Twelve. And do you have volunteers in your organization? Uh, well, yes. Uh, they are not in our organization but are sort of on the outskirts of it and uh, it's typically the mentors. So when you came to be a mentor at the hackathon, we didn't pay you. You volunteered that. And uh, through through different channels, people who are maybe already established in business, they want to come back, give back, or they're looking for investment opportunities, or just are experts in a domain where we happen to run uh, an event, we would find contact and um, and try to get them to be part of uh, these events and uh, or, or pair them up with entrepreneurs. So volunteers are mentors. Uh, we don't pay them uh, for their time. We have a a little bit of a charter and rules how we want them to engage with entrepreneurs for example we don't like them to sell services to the uh, to the mentees and and follow follow some code of conduct with them and um, and uh, so uh, looking after this network and maybe bringing them together uh, regularly so that they can you know share compare notes and uh, and grow their collective capability on how to coach and uh, and mentor people that's what we do okay and do you have sponsors as well um, yes, uh, we call them gold partners. Uh, so we're looking for a longer term commitments. Uh, we have three uh, big corporates that provide us different in-kind services, cash or, um, or expertise. Um, we also have sponsors for particular events. So let's say we run a space hackathon and we approach uh, space industry organizations to uh, to consider being a sponsor. There's a set amount. It's a one event. There's, a, there's kind of what you get out of it. What's your opportunity? How you can engage with the hackers and with the audience? And, um, and that happens a lot. And then as far as your, your, your employee team, what kind of skills do you have for the accelerators or just all the programs? It's, it's pretty diverse. Yes. So first of all, I'd like to say I have a phenomenal team. I have the privilege to, to be working with people who are, who are absolutely fantastic. It comes a lot of times to the executive leadership. And so I'm very fortunate to have fantastic COO and fantastic uh, general manager of growth programs. Uh, and um, so, so they, they together are sort of managing and curating uh, um, and, and I would say upgrading the knowledge of people on how to do these things. Uh, Craig is extremely experienced as an angel investor, as a former entrepreneur, researcher. So he he's so knowledgeable and uh, and the team that works with him, the growth team, just uh, sources a lot of the um, the skills, I guess, and uh, and the knowledge and capacity from him. But also they 
add a lot of value by bringing their own new angle skills we're looking for. Um, you cannot be, I think you cannot be an introvert in this space because the communication intensity is intensive. So, so uh, if you are an introvert, uh, you will be out of your comfort zone because you have to deal with a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, you so communication number one, uh, but the general general business overview is 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 plus technical as well because a lot of these conversations can be technical, uh, but we really want the diversity of people so that um, you know we can connect uh, the right mindsets with the right mindsets, and then the, we have the operations team that looks after the corking space marketing. And um, there we we look for thinking outside of the box. Uh, this is not a standardized process. Uh, they are creating the process. So these people have to be creative. They have to have tolerance for failure, have to tolerance for peak performance at peak times. And um, they they need to be collegial, supportive of each other. We invest a lot in um, in offsites, uh, getting the teams aligned, uh, well-being check-ins, all these kind of things you need to have so that the team is um, healthy, safe and can deliver and uh, and be there to support the entrepreneurs because it's a support uh, work and um, that can be hard sometimes. And a bit entrepreneurial themselves, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And that's why there is a bit of a turnover as well because uh, they kind of get the itching and I want to try it myself and they join other startups, they join other initiatives. So as an employer, we have to be attractive enough to be able to, to bring in new people and we have to be comfortable enough with them kind of... Um, getting out of the nest uh, fairly soon and uh, and that's happening recognizing that you do get government funding who's on your board so our board is representative of our foundation members so that's the australian national university university of canberra uh, canberra institute of technology uh, csiro and unsw canberra so each of them has a director seat but we also have an independent director uh, our chair, Ahala Betaina, is uh, from the industry. She came from the industry and was nominated by the chief minister. Uh, and then we have uh, two directors who are representing our advisory committee, uh, which is mostly made up of uh, corporate sponsors, but also entrepreneurs, investors, and um, the business community in general, uh, so that they can sort of counterbalance that academic and research uh, part. And I'm also one of the directors. Uh, so that's it's fairly big board, nine people. And um, and uh, they uh, consistently look after the governance performance, and uh, they have insight also as members and and clients of some of these initiatives. So we would be delivering programs with them for them, let's say at the ANU, and uh, so we have a lot of a lot of connectivity. I imagine having institutional directors is a different kind of challenge altogether. What are some of those, um, I guess, unusual change, uh, challenges you have to deal with, knowing that you have not just this person is actually a represent, representative of one of these founding partners, so they're actually representing a very large organization and might have their own needs and agenda compared to a, another founding partner? 
Yeah, so we'd like to think that at the board meeting they take all their hats off and uh, and just put on the hat of uh, Canberra Innovation Network director, which I believe they do, and I what I have observed. But outside of that, of course, uh, what we try to achieve is this cohesion and um, I would say intensive and growing collaboration of the foundation members. And as you said, these are massive institutions with large budgets, uh, large institutional opportunities and constraints. And uh, they also operate within one ecosystem and um, their operations may also create tensions with one another. So the key role of the network and the fact that they are actually on the board is that these can get really smoothened and um, explained and uh, they can collaborate and work in concert and it's already happening. So part of the part of the network's remit is already happening by by the board itself and they are literally sitting around the table together. And um, part of it is of course the ro- role for us uh, as executives, as the team to make sure that they are not left behind, that uh, they know about initiatives, that these get promoted to their student ecosystems and among their staff and researchers. And we are trying to always grow the network. So we just joined recently Academy of Interactive Entertainment as one of our partners. And, um, and as a network, we want to be broad and we want to be growing. And, and we also, of course, want the nodes of the network to collaborate. And if there is some rivalry, we want that to be a positive Uh, rivalry that, that benefits everyone in the city. Your your challenges are different than a lot of the not-for-profits I, I talk to on this show, meaning that your funding is at least, you know, year on year fairly stable and, and guaranteed because it's, it's a lot of government funding. What are some of the other challenges, though, that you have to deal with other than the institutional board directors? There's got to be some things that are kind of unique to your environment. Look, uh, we, we're, um, you know, not-for-profit, uh, partially funded by the government. We run government-funded programs. So I guess the the requirements for um, transparency, for reporting, uh, the level of scrutiny is higher than if you run um, a small business <laughs> that services uh, customers. Um, and so we have to make sure that, uh, that we document, report, and we are available to answer questions to um, to our constituents and to the community at large. So um, that I, f- I find a business as usual. Um, I find sometimes challenging when when you get people who are clients who think they know how to run what you do <laughs> while and they, they keep kind of, you know, Telling, telling you that no, no, you shouldn't do this. You should do this for us. And and there's when there's too many of them, uh, leading in too many different directions. At the end of the day, y- you have a business to run. Not everyone will be satisfied. Not everyone will be happy at all times. Also, this is a space where failure is omnipresent. And um, the way we as a society understand failure just just informs and impacts how people feel about dealing with us. So not all of these companies will be successful. And we have to normalize, embrace, support and celebrate when people have done something that didn't work and uh, and 
make sure that they feel included and they can be part of it um, in, the, in, the, in, in different forms and ways. But sometimes, personally, people can get hurt and uh, feel rejected. And, um, and uh, we really have no license to be psychologists. And, um, and uh, we, we exist to help everyone. And uh, we hope that the community will look after, after them. But it can be hard. It can be hard for you as a mentor, for a staff member who is literally genuinely trying to help. And if that business is going nowhere and that entrepreneur might have even financial pressures, etc., it, it can get tense. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the fact that you have a room full of entrepreneurs that want to tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not, not always, but, um, but uh, and we, 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 of course, ask for feedback all the time. Yeah. So in terms of programs that, um, that we run, we are fairly confident that they meet the need. But uh, as a 12 people can look like a large team, but we have lots of programs. And if uh, you get uh, seven ideas per day, what else you should be doing? As a CEO and as a, as a team, we need to kind of protect so that we don't lose some of the great things that are happening. With only that many people, though, you, you'd have to rely more on outsourced partners, right? So what in what functions that are, you know, back office are in-house versus outsourced? We have excellent uh, relationship with some service providers, um, uh, professional service providers from legal services through accounting CFO. So, so uh, we don't have in-house CFO. This, this, is, uh, this is outsourced uh, through a partnership. So at a favorable price, which is very important for operations of a not-for-profit. And, um, and we rely on uh, expertise of these people a lot. And that has been a uh, existential and critical for for our operations. I think a lot of charities and HR as well. Oh, HR. HR. Too. We have we have okay. HR expertise, and although we run the things in house, having access to to the HR expertise is just amazing. Yeah, it's always interesting to see what the organizations choose to outsource from a back office point of view. Obviously, your front line needs to be in house. Yeah. But for the the back house, I think it's it differs, right? Like an organization like a charity that might have a lot of transactions probably couldn't consider outsourcing everything yeah. from a finance perspective. And someone who has a large frontline staff would not necessarily be able to outsource their HR. Mm -hmm. So it's always interesting to see how. Yeah, so we have a COO who is re who's responsible for the domain, but she has access to a team. And uh, I forgot also IT. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, yeah, outsource so, IT. So, yeah. <laughs> so as, uh, the more we talk about it, like the more I see how outsourced we are, actually. We, we focus yeah. on the things that cannot be outsourced, which is the main purpose of the network, yeah. working with the entrepreneurs. Yeah. We try not to outsource those, but we provide a hosting environment for other initiatives and organizations who do something for entrepreneurs as well. And that's 50-50. Um, that's so we, mm. we really host a lot of other organizations to yeah. help entrepreneurs. Now, I know you've just been on a very nice holiday. There's the challenge with having an organization of that size is oftentimes you don't have the ability to remove your hat when you need to take a break. Tell me how you learn to delegate in those situations, because it is so hard when you only have 12 FTE. Yeah, and I, I have traditionally not been good at it. 
<laughs> have been good in the wrong thing, which is like going in and helping people with their jobs. And I really enjoyed it and loved it. And it took, it was a bit of a process and I, I got coaching on how to do that. And I'm very grateful for that. And uh, and it felt, it was difficult. It, it was, uh, it, it, it felt like I'm removing myself from being useful <laughs> to, to being this sort of high level where, you know, people may not even value what uh, what you provide from that high level and uh, so that was a process i went through and i'm so glad i did it and only really this this long service uh, leave holiday has enabled me to see how wonderful it is <laughs> to be able to have that team that that can literally exist without me for extended period of time and how it kind of opens the opportunity for me to to take on new things that can that can bring the next horizon uh, opportunity for us. So so um, so it has been a process. I recommend everyone to focus on it because it's not natural to you. It will be rubbing you wrong against your values of kind of rolling your sleeve and doing the work and and being. Um, across everything and so on but you need to trust your people more and um, they will surprise you because they will do a better job than you always mm. i think that's a great lesson learned to probably end on since i know we're out of time peter was there anything else you just wanted to share with our audience well i, I am not a typical not-for-profit leader i came from private sector and uh, i always say this is my first real job because I was always entrepreneur, one of the sort of co-owners of whatever I was doing. So um, I think that not-for-profits should be run like any businesses. Uh, just they have the luxury of not having to distribute the the you know accumulated profits to their owners, but they share it with the community of their interest and of their purpose. And I think it's a it's a wonderful uh, framework to work from. It, it gives me purpose, and I believe that to a lot of your audience, it's it's the same. And uh, just wish them all the best in it. Hmm. If, if people want to know more about the Canberra Innovation Network, what is the best way to do that so if you happen to be in canberra uh, or you're planning a trip to canberra plan it for first wednesday because at five o'clock every first wednesday there will be a gathering somewhere around canberra where you can meet everyone uh, in the innovation ecosystem uh, you go on cbrin.com.au that's where you can register for any of our events that's where you can also learn a lot about our programs and if you happen to be here um, outside of um, First Wednesday, you can always uh, drop in and have a desk at the co-working space. And we are, of course, also accessible virtually to share lessons learned uh, and connect with other innovation centers around the world because our entrepreneurs have global ambitions and they may be traveling to your country and uh, they may need to locate uh, themselves somewhere where it's a like-minded environment. So we're always open to that. Excellent. And if somebody wanted to connect with you personally, is LinkedIn the best way? LinkedIn is great. Way. Yeah. Okay. Peter, thank you for everything you shared today. There's been some interesting lessons from being in such a different sector of not-for-profits that, that I think we haven't shared for um, 
on the show yet. So thank you for sharing some of that. And also thank you for the work that you and your team do for actually prompting up a lot of businesses that need that extra help. You know, the number of startups that have just, maybe they didn't succeed through that process, but the learnings from that and the network they've created just by being in this the same space is certainly good for them personally and as business owners, but for the general community as well. So thank you for that work that you and your team do. Thank you, Tommy, and thanks for having me. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT and Plain English segment is, what is the difference between a student management system and a learning management system? A student management system, or a SMS, or sometimes called a SIS, is primarily used for administration purposes for a training or educational organization. They keep track of student records, like courses they take and test results. In Australia especially, they're used by registered training organizations, or RTOs, for the required reporting related to government funding. A learning management system, or a LMS on the other hand, is more like a virtual classroom that it focuses on learning specifically. It usually stores pre-built courses and related materials such as videos or interactive quizzes. While the primary focus of each kind of system may be clear, in reality, their functionality often overlaps depending on the vendor. So how do you decide if you should invest in an SMS or an LMS? Well, I recommend you first look at your strategic objectives for the investment. If it's to reduce manual administration processes, then look at an SMS first. If it is to store courses so that you can deliver them on demand or in some sort of hybrid delivery model, research an LMS instead. So there you have it in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just might answer it on the show. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave me a review. To all of you executives with the cause, the world is definitely a better place because of you. Thank you for what you and your teams do every day.